Grove Solvers, how's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the Good Grow Great podcast. How's everyone feeling? Where are you guys listening in from? I know that we have a great global audience. I'm so thrilled that you're here, whether you're on commute, whether you are working out or, you know, in the bathroom at home taking a dump or whatever it is that you're listening in from. Uh, Welcome, welcome, because today... We are going to be talking here at the Good Grow Great podcast, uh, the Great Lengths segment. We're going to be talking to David Chitty. Now, of course, I'm Talia Toha, and I am taking you in this Great Lengths episode to unpack some of the journeys that people have gone through throughout their lives and their work and what it takes for them to really survive certain situations that maybe you and I will never uh, have encountered, whether that's good or bad, right? And what's interesting, though, is today, David, whom we're going to listen to and, and hear from in just a minute, David is or was an Army Infantry Corps officer in combat during the Vietnam War and was a Royal Army officer. He also represented Victoria, Australia on the climbing, upsailing, and caving good practice guides writing teams, which is so cool. Now, for over 35 years, he spent a great deal of time outdoors, underground, in river caves, climbing up waterfalls and through the spectacular granite boulders that uh, maybe some of you guys haven't ever seen. And I certainly haven't done this before. This is definitely in my bucket list. At Adventure Guides Australia, which is his business, he helps people overcome some of his uh, some of their biggest fears. And today, he is sharing with us how he number one managed a big group conflict and a difficult conversation using certain small steps, right? That you can also actually use in negotiating your salary, getting clients, and even getting promoted, right? And secondly, he also shared how to, what to do really when you're stuck in place and you don't like where you're at, right? Whatever that is, your your life situation, maybe it's a job, maybe it's a particular activity, maybe it's a certain thing that you're writing or creating, whatever that might be. And what can you do about it? And last but certainly not the least, what you really should be doing to get out of your comfort zone. So David is taking us behind the scenes uh, into some of the some of the things that he's seen, of course, in the many years that he's been doing this. So before we dive in, Growth Solvers, be sure to hit follow and subscribe. Let's do this. David, welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Amazing. Welcome, welcome. And you are coming in from Australia and you have such a vast experience and it's almost difficult to pick where to start, but I thought that we'd begin with your experience as an SAS officer and uh, in the Royal Papua New Guinea Constabulary. And for our listeners who are not from Australia and maybe from the U.S., this is, uh, this is akin to the U.S. SEALs, correct, David? It's, that's pretty right, yeah. yeah. In fact, very much so because I was a uh, diving troop commander. Wow, okay. So how did that 
experience, what was that like? Because I know that when you mentioned you're in the Royal uh, Papua New Guinea Constabulary, I think it remains, it remains to this day, I think, a somewhat, um, I wouldn't say troublesome area, but there's definitely a lot of things happening there. And you mentioned that you advise on riot control, uh, which is also near and dear to my heart. A lot of people who are listeners know that I have experienced a riot uh, personally in my home country in Indonesia. And so I want to talk a little bit about this. And so share with us how you became a, an SAS officer. And you said you're in the diving team. Is that correct? Yes, I, I was conscripted into national service to fight in the Vietnam War. And when I came back from two tours, I, went, uh, I uh, applied for full-time service and stayed in the Army. And I applied for the um, SAS, the Special Air Service Regiment, because that was sort of the, a high, high point for uh, someone to aim for. And uh, I'd always wanted to, do, um, yeah, to dive and be you know, um, yeah, like a frogman, so to speak. So <laughs> I ended up in a diving troupe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah this, is, this is hilarious. Now, I, I'd imagine since your time there, the nature has changed. And... It is somewhat, it's still, I think, though, somewhat wild, right? Like some of the things that you see in there. What are some of the cool things that you've, you've seen uh, in, in your time there as a diving uh, leader there? Well, um, when we're talking about uh, that was in the regiment, when I, uh, as an officer, you stay for a couple of years, I then went to another job, you know, in staff and uh, headquarters, and I had the opportunity to go to Papua New Guinea as an advisor and of course, being an amphibious SAS troop commander, they sent me to <laughs> to, to ten thousand feet above sea level in the highest point in the uh, mountains of Papua New Guinea to a place called Mount Hagen. Yeah, and uh, I was there to work with the police and advise them on uh, on on managing what was tra- traditional tribal fighting, primarily. Although to some degree in they did have some other urban crime and other things around Papua New Guinea, but most of it was about how to manage traditional tribal fighting to not stop it as much as to minimise the damage and impact and the fact that people were starting to use firearms rather than uh, their traditional weapons. So uh, we needed to transition away from what the past was because it wasn't going to fit into the modern world yeah, without destroying culture. Right. And I actually like the nuance that you had mentioned there that in these such, uh, I don't think a lot of people are aware of this. I mean, why would you? Because this is in such remote places in the world. But it, there are very, it, there's so many nuances going on here, right? It's, it's family related. It's, it's from one tribe to the other tribe. So I think even the idea of trying to uh, I don't. I don't want to say mitigate per se, but just even to be there as a as, as a force of uh, security, right? That's even is still tricky. Now, how did you guys navigate that from the perspective of your team? Uh, I'm I'm imagining as an outsider almost to these to these tribes and families and really deep rooted families. How did you guys manage such conflict? Well, I was by myself. I was literally by myself. And uh, I was in civilian clothes with a beard, right? Because I, yeah, so that it wasn't obvious that there was a, a military officer there, bad publicity. Um, and uh, uh, I work with the uh, Papua New Guinean police. So my, uh, the officers there were all uh, Papua New Guinean, the group commander. And we had 
We had 500 police based out of Mount Hagen and the surrounding towns, and they were in groups of about um, of about 30, similar to an infantry platoon. But they were they were there to um, you yeah, know to to try and as I said mitigate the the the, the damage that tribal fighting could happen when it got out of hand, yeah. Um, but what I did was sort of bring a bit of, uh, try and reduce the amount of violence the police used. So when I arrived, I found that uh, violence just breeds violence. So, you know, you, you, you try and reduce the amount of, uh, um, of, of violence. You use the minimum force. Uh, yeah, and although I was a soldier, and I fitted in quite well because, of course, it's a warrior culture up there. Yeah. And the people saw me as a warrior. Got it. Okay, so they're pretty welcoming, and they just kind of uh, welcome you with open arms, which is absolutely amazing. And uh, I like what you just said there, in that violence breeds violence. Now, even though we primarily in this podcast, we talk about businesses and entrepreneurship, there's always a kind of a causality perspective that we're looking for, because in any sort of decision making, right, when people have to, they're facing life choices and just kind of big decisions, business or personal, I think it's interesting that you mentioned violence violence breeds violence, because sometimes people think that just because something is one way, it's going to change, or just because something else is introduced, it's going to change. Not necessarily, right? So I like that you mentioned that, well, the approach is actually quite the opposite. You can't kind of approach something with uh, violence with violence. And I wonder if that's true as well in business where you kind of go, okay, well, this is an obstacle. You can't really approach it uh, necessarily on offense, but maybe approach it as something that is, and this reminds me of one of my favorite books in the world. I don't know if you've read this, David. The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday, which is, an amazing read and he talks about how Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius essentially looks at obstacles and challenges as something that uh, that can create opportunity to become better and I absolutely love that perspective and I can kind of see reflections of that in what you had just said there there which is absolutely amazing and so just kind of shifting gears for a second here, you mentioned that you uh, were also in the Vietnam War, you're an Army Infantry Corps officer, so you have a lot of experience here in, in that arena. And uh, so what kind of brought you, where did that interest to interest in the outdoor space, where did that interest come from, David? So I did two 12-month tours in Vietnam. We used to go into the jungle for... Four to six weeks, um, you yeah, um, in chasing the, the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong. So, you know, teamwork and, uh, and risk um, and to some, you know, hardship and that the good and the bad and the ugly, I suppose, in that environment. But it was certainly a, a growing up thing for a, a young man of um, 23, 24 to have that level of responsibility. So what, and I'm always curious, I always ask this whenever somebody from, uh, from the military or Navy come on the show, how did you go through an experience like that when you're out in the, in the open and this is, 
you know, I'm assuming it's not your home country and it's, you know, the weather. I've, I have read descriptions that at the time, Vietnam is one of the hottest places that anyone can be in. So how did you, from a mindset perspective, how did you get through it? What made you uh, kind of keep marching onward, aside from obviously, you know, orders from from uh, your your officer, your um, commanders. What are wh- what brought you kind of to basically be able to march forward? Yeah, um, I mean, I think scouting was the big thing. Um, I spent most of my life and yeah, my younger life with scouts and out gold prospecting and hunting and in the bush when we weren't with scouting. So although the climate was different I was very used to and experienced in the outdoors and also the outdoors in a team environment whether it was hiking or doing some sort of a a scouting type task so so the military was just a a step up from that yeah so you're used to it is basically what you're saying (laughs) well I was more used to it than many and I was already used to being cold and wet and other things Uh, a lot of my uh, when I went through officer training I found that Many of the my peer group were city people and had never experienced anything like that. Yeah, so I mean, on our officer training course, I think 120 started and about 60 graduated. Yeah, so it was a uh, wow, that many hard. dropped out. Wow. Yeah. At yeah. what points do they normally drop out? Is it usually midway or is it further? Uh, all the way through, mostly. Uh, yeah, but it was a. They only had us for two years, so they had to do a six-month course yeah. when minimum for training an officer had been considered to be 12 months in the past. So they just worked this twice as hard. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Big, expected a big failure rate. Yeah. yeah, I love this. I love that you – and I think that's one thing to remember for everyone who's listening is that everything is a muscle, right? I think including – your brain, your perseverance, your grit. And I, I always talk with business owners about how, you know, if anything else, there is value in just doing what you need to do, right? Because at one after the other, repetition after repetition, you get better, you know, you get more used to it. It gets so much easier and it is so valuable. I think that experience and not a lot of people realize that, that, you know, you can't just jump from point A to point Z. You can't suddenly become an SAS officer uh, if you don't first train or if you don't first go scouting for a number of years, right? Or if you don't already love being outdoors like you, uh, like you are. And I think this is so, so important, which is absolutely, uh, absolutely amazing. So I wanted to then now segue into real quick, and so just kind of your love for, you know, caves and all of these beautiful, beautiful gems that where you are in Australia, can you explain, I think there's a lot of, for people who are listening, there, maybe they can't travel per se, right? Maybe Australia is far away from, from, uh, from where they are. I know from the US, at least going to Australia is a multi-day journey, right? And can you maybe share a couple of things as far as far as Australia's terrain? Where could people start if they want to, uh, you know, venture out in Australia? What are some beginner levels and all that? Like, can you touch on that just for a second, David? Yeah, look, Australia's. Um, yep. Once you get here, I mean, Victoria, for instance, is quite a small state, um, and Tasmania, quite small. But you you can arrive in a place like Melbourne or Sydney. 
um, or Hobart, our capitals of those states, and within an hour you can be in a cave or on a cliff or paddling on a river. Yeah, so quite a lot of our adventure, um, some of it low level, some of it high level, is quite accessible and close to our cities. Uh, and there are numerous uh, uh, clubs, groups and tour operators that can take people. If you're talking about something like caving, um, certainly can do a cave tour with an adventure operator. But there's uh, an association, a worldwide association of cavers, all countries, I mean, I had a post from uh, some cavers in America um, this morning popped up about exploring some cave in, uh, I can't remember which state it was. Yeah? Um, so, so if you're an interest, if you are a caver or you are a rock climber, of course, you follow those paper trails of the, uh, uh, the individuals and associations and, and networks that allow you to get the information before you go to a place. So but I think how- like all like all travel, do a bit of uh, do a bit of research before you go and decide what you can fit in, yeah, with minimum travel and minimum wasted time that'll meet your expectations. Absolutely. So I wanted to actually ask you, as far as people who are maybe haven't tried caving versus rock climbing, like how are they specifically different? Obviously, you're in a cave versus you're on a rock somewhere out there. Are there, what are some, some highlights as far as how they're different? Well, I think uh, for people that are beginners, and let's say they're using a commercial operator, you have a licensed commercial operator like myself, yeah, we will tailor normally a day or a half-day experience to suit the individuals or the type of group. Uh, and then you might adjust the activity to help an individual that might be um, struggling a little bit. And one of the ways we would do that in, say, caving, right, which is a team activity, where we would form, find someone in the group that was a little bit stronger and dealing with it better to help the one person that wasn't. So you build the team to go through the cave. You do have two leaders when you're caving, but we don't want to actually run the whole thing. We actually get the, the participant group, even in a two or three hour caving experience, you can actually uh, get a lot of life skill stuff coming out of it as well as having a great time and going to some amazing place that you never would have gone to if you didn't have a guide. Yeah, and let's talk about those life skills for a second because you mentioned tailoring the experience and I think it's so important right now for particularly businesses of all types, whether you're in the outdoor space or you're in, who knows, right? You're in the restaurant industry or you're in jewelry, whatever it is, there's an element of experience that I think whether you're offline or online is still important. So how did you, uh, you know, it, you mentioned earlier bringing the stronger people first, maybe people who have a little bit more experience. How important is that customer journey and experience for what you do? We can run the experience regardless of the type of customers, but it's 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 giving the customer some ownership of uh, yeah of what they're doing within safety limits. Uh, caving is amazing because it can be ropes or it can be horizontal where you're crawling and squeezing, but people have to help people up something that's slippery or perhaps give them advice on how to get through a hole. We don't do it. We'll show one of the individuals and they will run everyone through the hole, you know. So, you know, we're getting, um, you know, teaching a bit of risk management, a bit of communication, yeah. People learn consequences if I don't, if I don't go through the hole the way that uh, they've asked me to, I'm not going to fit. Uh, you know, uh, and uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, and and 
I think, you know, those sorts of, uh, of simple things, communication, clear communication is probably, and teamwork is probably the big thing you get out of caving. You've touched on all of uh, all of my favorites, right? The consequence, the causality, that's number one. The second one is communication. Who's going to deny that when you're caving and your life relies on each other, right? And somebody's leading the way into the unknown, into the abyss. You have to communicate to your team. And also the risk management. I think this is absolutely crucial because, yes, even though as a team you can assess the risk a certain way, but individually, they're also, it's, it's an organic thing. I think a risk is not this kind of static thing. I feel like particularly in the outdoors, and I think also in business, actually, and in work and life and career, there is kind of this element where risk is, is an organic form, where day by day, it really does change. I think especially because the person viewing the risk also changes, right? You're, maybe you're tired that day. Or maybe you're, uh, you know, you, you didn't sleep very well the night before, or, you know, that particular rock was extra slippery or whatever. So I like that you kind of highlighted that. But I particularly love that you mentioned giving them ownership, right, of the experience. And so one of the things that I, I've seen when I work with a lot of businesses and my students is that they, uh, you know, I think there's this perception that everything has to be, uh, you know, everything has to be kind of coming from them, right, originating from the provider. And, and then, and then almost, they almost get frustrated when the customer, the client, the buyer, whatever it is, when they don't uh, respond a certain way. But I like that you mentioned giving them ownership and letting them test things out and, uh, and letting them almost rise to the occasion, right, David? Which is absolutely amazing. So uh, let's chat for a second here about, uh, about caving a little bit more because I'm curious about uh, what you've been doing for a number of years Obviously, right? You you have uh, you work at uh, you share activities for Mount Buffalo. You have bring people to crawls through holes, glow worms, right? And I think this is a great analogy in life as well, where you know you can't really get certain experiences or exposures and know certain things unless you go through certain paths, which I think is absolutely, absolutely amazing. Let's talk for a second, though, about your, uh, uh, one of your offerings within your business is uh, underground river, taking people through underground river. And I've never been through an underground river before. Can you walk us through how one can nag- navigate through underground river? Is it dark? Is it like how, what are some safety measures that you take and maybe some dangers of, of doing something like that? Okay, the underground river cave at Mount Buffalo is our cave with the glowworms in it. Um, and they only live in the cave. They're a remnant species, so really a tiny little patch of something that was around since the day of the dinosaurs. But uh, what we do is we only have a three-hour group. So as you can see, um, we rig people up with helmets and helmet lights. So I'm wearing some uh, uh, on, the, on the thing behind me there, the picture. And uh, everyone's issued with a, a little length of, of, of cord or tape that they, we can use to help as safety systems. And the leaders, uh, we have two leaders. And we have two leaders because 
you're going into a place where the group might not be able to come back out themselves. It's not you know, navigating back out. So the second leader is there not to manage the group, but in case something happens to the primary leader, there is an opportunity to retrieve the group. Um, a group of peer cavers, you all know what you're doing, but we're taking people that don't. We start people off in a – it's only a small cave, about 150 metres long, and it's all crawling and, uh, and, and, and squeezing. We start people in a dry part of the cave, so we get them used to small spaces, working together, and the dark. Wow. Then we, then we drop down into the lower part of this cave where we actually get to the river, you know, the water that's running through the cave. And then we're adding that other dimension, which is water. Yeah. So we're building the, getting people used to bits of the experience or the, the, the bits that might scare them. Yeah. The confined space and, and so on first. And, and yeah. Let's, let's touch on that for a second because I'm kind of curious when you said that this is, it's in the dark and it's confined. And what are some, reactions that you hear from people who are in your tours from people who've never done something like that before what are some reactions that that you get from other people is it shock is it fear is it just terror like what are some reactions there you get some interesting reactions that uh, you know people say they have claustrophobia oh i'm, te- I'm i've got claustrophobia i don't know why they went on a Gave to it, but I've got claustrophobia. So, well, our normal retort to that is something like, uh, fine, do you close the door on the toilet? And they say, what do you mean? Well, I said, yeah, you close the door on the toilet, you're locking yourself into a fairly small space, yeah? If you can do that, you haven't got claustrophobia. All you're doing is you're like everyone else. You have a, we have an inherent fear of what might be in a cave, probably dating back to when there were cave bears and other types of things, or will the roof fall in on me? Yeah, the, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's identifying, getting people to identify what they're actually frightened of rather than coming up with a, a reason. Yeah, I think this is interesting that you mentioned the, <laughs> the, the, the toilet analogy because obviously the size of the spaces shouldn't be an issue. And I wonder then, is it the fact that they cannot see right, or the light that, that is, or void of light, I should say, uh, that's happening right there. And maybe that's what changed the perspective, right? Because in the dark, you have no idea whether it's, it's 100 meters or whatever, or like 10 meters. So I wonder if that might be the case. And I wonder if this is something that's also true in, like I said, in, in at work and in life. It's almost like it's not really the thing itself. It's whether or not we've, sh- we've shined the right light on it, we've looked at it from the right angle, right? Or we're looking at it with the different uh, specs or the specs that we should be looking at it with, which obviously because you're so familiar with the cave and the space itself, it really helps that, uh, that you're like, well, I've gone through this maybe hundreds of times, you're going to be fine, right? And I think in life almost, that's part of the reason why I wonder if mentorship, right, and having somebody who's a few years ahead of you is so crucial. And uh, because you get, you get to kind of hang on to the fact that they've survived it, and they've gone through this numbers and numbers of time. And 
I also like that you mentioned that you have a second team leader at the end, right? And just kind of having someone's back or having the team's back. And I think this is one thing because a lot of people search years for the right, again, the right guide, the right mentor, the right person to look forward to, but then they don't really think about the person behind them, people who they can lift up, right? Who, people who are a couple of years behind them. And I feel like there's analogies here from, from the, uh, the caving experience, which is just absolutely, absolutely amazing. Um, so David, I want to talk for a second here about your uh, school holiday programs and uh, is that so you do you take people and kids outside and that's what uh, and they have a good time out there in Mount Buffalo is that what you do we we tend our school holiday programs tend to be for families yeah so the whole family and we try and get um, yeah the family to participate and it's interesting when you were talking about the caving, about the second leader being the back. The second leader, we don't have at the back. We would actually have, if you were part of our team, we might say, okay, can you wait here till the whole team comes through and then you're at the back? So we actually give every participant tasks of handling a particular mm. challenge, uh, yeah, being the last person out of the hole, making sure everyone else is gone before they move on. So we're actually teaching some of those skills that are useful in life and business. And that's what we do with our, um, with our holiday programs. We're trying to have activities that are suitable for a various range of children and their families, two things, A, to encourage and challenge the child, but also to involve the parents so that the parent sees the value in them taking their children out to, yeah. to adventures and other things and giving them opportunities so that they're taking, they're not just always going with someone like us, they're actually building the life themselves. Yeah, I like that you are bringing families in these in these trips because have you seen what have you seen or in families that that kind of surprise you as far as the family dynamics because I often find that people really behave in interesting ways, funny, hilarious, or maybe even just shocking when they're around their family. I think particularly when you mentioned dark spaces, confined spaces, have you, do you remember in the years that you've done this when you're like, oh, wow, I can't believe that, you know, whatever dad went ahead and left everybody behind or whatever. Uh, is there any kind of anecdotes that you can share? Well, generally, it's quite interesting. You, you, with caving, you'll often find you'll have a father and son as an example, you know, maybe a seven or eight-year-old, right? And the father may, and we've had experiences with the father saying, little Johnny's terrified, we need to get him out. And you talk to little Johnny and little Johnny's having a great time, right? <laughs> <laughs> and having no problems at all. So, so you then yeah. find a situation where the child may well be being restricted by the parents, I, the child can't do this. We don't, I've always, I don't, I see children as trainee adults. I don't yeah. see children as, as children. I'm more like, a, uh, you know, I live in a tribal environment in you know, my old days as a soldier and stuff. Yeah? You know, you're very basic. Uh, and I think that uh, yeah, once a child can do something, they can do it. But they're, they're just a young adult, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's like saying teenagers have problems. Well, yeah, heavens, uh, 
Uh, Everybody yeah. does. Yeah, adults do. Everybody does, but not only that, in past times when we only lived till our 30s and 40s, by the time people were 16, they were leading armies and running kingdoms and uh, businesses and whatever. So we sometimes attribute uh, the fact that certain parts of our society can't do something or certain age limits restrict you when in actual fact they don't. I like that you brought this up because because I think particularly with kids, it's almost like, um, you know, you are, you do get really surprised by how competent they can actually be, right? Mentally, they might need a little bit more time or whatever, but I find that that's probably true as well when, you know, again, if you're, if you have teams, right, and you, I mean, your business, you definitely have teams, but in other business, you have employees and employers. And sometimes employees that really step up and really can make a massive change comes from an entry level or from really the department that you don't, you don't expect uh, would be involved and would be able to solve certain problems. I think that's what absolutely is amazing about this dynamic, this organic dynamic between humans, um, especially in the business setting, because you can actually, you know, I, I don't think, I don't believe in kind of bending down necessarily to, um, to basically, it, it's almost like, um, uh, I don't want to say insulting their intelligence, but I believe in actually raising them up and lifting them up to a level that they haven't yet tried. And once they do that, and you've probably seen this too, David, in your experience with, with, your, uh, with your tours, People get, I mean, they feel elevated, they feel good, right? And, uh, and they feel absolutely amazing. But I do want to mention for a second here, what's hilarious is your anecdote on the father who uses, who uses the kid as an excuse, which I, I can totally believe. And I'm a mom, and that happens too sometimes as a mom. And uh, it's absolutely hilarious, which is great. Um, so David, believe it or not, we are at the conclusion of our conversation. If you can please share with the audience uh, where they can find you or connect with you, perhaps your website and, and or whatever else it is, and then we can wrap up the interview. Yes, we, we're, uh, my company's Adventure Guides Australia and uh, we're in Victoria, the northeast of Victoria, a little bit into New South Wales, but we can be found on the, on the web and on Facebook. And uh, I also uh, run Mount Buffalo Ski School, which is a, a cross-country ski school, a little family-based business in a tiny little mountain where you don't have to pay entry fees and you can come up. We've got more tobogganing than anywhere else in Australia. So, uh, but we're easy to find um, and most people in Australia would know my business. I've been around for nearly 40 years since I left the army. Amazing. David, thank you so much for being on the podcast. A pleasure. Lovely to talk with you. Growth Solvers, be sure to hit follow and subscribe. Let's do this.